Well, good morning, everyone. Especially to those of you who are out in the lobby, we are glad you are here today, and uh, we love you just as much as we do then. So does Jesus, by the way. As we continue our series on the home, we are going to talk today about interruptions, because we know that all of us have interruptions in our personal life, in our family life, and that's just the way life is. Did you ever notice that interruptions always come at the most inopportune time? <laughs> That's why they're called interruptions, not uh, regular planned events. But several years ago, as, as you know, as some of you know at least, I'm a big college football fan. And every fall, I always enjoy watching football. And on just about every Saturday in the fall, you can find me in front of the television set for a considerable amount of time watching college football. Well, on January the 2nd, 1984, the culmination of the football season that year is the national championship game. And that particular year was Nebraska against Miami. This was Miami's first national championship game. It was quite a big event. It was a big hyped event. And so I settled in my chair about 8 o'clock at night, and I had my Diet Coke over on my right-hand side, and I had all my munchies on my left-hand side, and I was ready to watch the game of the year, the most important game of the year. And the phone rang. So I looked at the phone. I looked at the television. I thought, well... This is before uh, caller ID. I thought, well, maybe it's Publishers Clearinghouse telling me I won the sweepstakes. Maybe I better pick it up. So I picked up the phone. It was a lady from the congregation where I was pastoring, and she said, Pastor, you really got to come out and see us tonight. She said, my husband and I just had this big, huge fight. The kids are all crying. It's so chaotic. My husband says he's leaving, and you've just got to come out. Oh, great. What if I come out in the morning? Would that be Okay. <laughs> No, really, Pastor, you got to be here tonight. So God and I had a little conversation. I said, God, you know, this is the most important game of the year. And he said, Tom, you know you're a pastor, right? <laughs> I said, well, God, I'm probably not going to do any good anyway. This couple had numerous situations. He said, Tom, I didn't call you to be successful. I called you to be faithful. So I went. Now, that was a minor inconvenience. But have you ever had experiences in life where you're doing something that is really important? And in the midst of doing something that is really important, some annoying person comes in hey, and interrupts you right in the middle of something that you're... Tom! Over here. What? Doug? I need to talk to you. Doug, is that you? I need to talk to you. What, what do you mean you need to talk to me? I got to talk to you about something. I'm trying to I, set up a tea time for this week. Oh. <laughs> You know, and since you only work one day a week. <laughs> you know, I'm in the middle of speaking here. This is a sermon, Doug. You're preaching? Yeah, yeah. Trying, trying to. And they stayed. Well, so far. <laughs> I mean, it's early in the sermon, so they still got a chance to get out, you know. By the way, there's a lot of people outside there, too, listening. So no pressure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is Doug Norris. This is one of my very close friends for the last 20-plus years. And uh, he's been a great influence on my life, encourager, supporting person uh, on the elder board at, at a different congregation. And so I asked Doug to come out today and be the designated annoyer. And, uh, <laughs> but he also has something far more serious than just a little joke that we just played, and that is this. Doug, have you ever had a tragic interruption in your family or in the people close to you? We have. So um, on August 27th, uh, 2005, my wife and I were at dinner, uh, enjoying a nice dinner, and um, we got one of those phone calls that you never want to get. 
And uh, the phone call was uh, about her nephew, our nephew. And he had went down to South Florida uh, with a friend to see uh, uh, that friend's sister in college. And um, they were out at the beach, and they were body surfing. And uh, his name is Joey. Um, he's 19 years old. And um, uh, Joey's a big kid. He was six foot eight. And they were body surfing, and a wave got a hold of him. And it put him nose down, and uh, he broke his neck. And um, so that day, um, we did all we could to hurry down to South Florida. And throughout that week, we were informed that Joey was going to be paralyzed from his chest down. And so that week, we spent preparing for what was going to be Joey's life as a paraplegic and what was going to change there. Um, while in the hospital that week, though, um, on Saturday, um, Joey had um, contracted an infection in the hospital. And on Saturday, uh, September the 3rd, uh, he passed away at the age of 19. Doug, obviously a tragic interruption in your family. How did you react to that? What kind of emotions did you have? Or how did you respond to such a, a bad situation? So like most families, um, obviously the news of the first news of being um, paralyzed. paralyzed was just, you know, something to deal with, and, and it, was, it was tragic. Um, but then the death, and so, like every family would, we were um, a range of emotions. Um, obviously, devastation, um, sadness, um, and admittedly, a little angry. Sure. Um, our faith was shaken. Sure. Um, we had questions about why would this happen to such a young person, um, over really just a freak accident. And so um, there was a whole range of emotions that we all went through. Sure. And Doug, that is a fairly common experience for us because when we go through these tragic interruptions in our life, sometimes it makes us question things. What, what is the story here? Why is this happening and difficult? So how did you move through that experience and how did you come out to where you are today and your strength of that tragic experience moving forward? Well, I think we had three main things. One was our faith. Um, and as a family, um, I, again, I admit to you that we had some times we questioned Struggle. that. Struggle. And I think that's what makes God such a great God is he allows us to ask those questions Good. during those times. Um, the second thing we had is we had a very strong family. And the family unit that was dealing with that, um, Joey's mom and sister and grandma and us, um, we had a great family that, that stayed together. Um, and then the last thing that really helped was um, we had a lot of church friends. Our church really um, went through this with us, um, and so they walked through that with us. They supported it, uh, us through there, and um, so I would say faith, our family, and our church is how we made it through that. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Doug, thanks for coming out today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. You know, the Bible is full of individuals who had tragic interruptions in their life. Beginning in the very first book of the Bible, we know that Adam and Eve lost their home. We know that from that we find the story of Jonah, who was interrupted by three days in the belly of a great fish. We know that Joseph was sold into slavery. That's a pretty big interruption in your life. We get to the New Testament, we find individuals like Saul, who was blinded for three days by a great light to try to get his attention about who God was. 
We also know that Mary had an unplanned pregnancy, and those interruptions sometimes can cause, as Doug has said, a great deal of stress, a great deal of anxiety, and sometimes a great deal of doubt. Today, we're going to take a look at a story about an interruption, an interruption where Jesus is preaching. The story is found for us in Mark chapter 2, and it's going to be through the first 12 verses, and we're going to put them on the board as we go through so that you can see them. In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, Capernaum is a sleepy village where uh, Peter and his family lived. It's right on the Sea of Galilee. The people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. As Jesus began to preach and teach, and as he began to heal individuals, naturally there began to be large groups of people that wanted to find out what was going on. So he goes into this home, and it is completely 100% packed, kind of like the 4 o'clock service here at Christmas Eve at Harborside. Any of you at that service, right? How many of you decide you're going to go to a different time next year on Christmas Eve? So it was absolutely full. The houses at that time were very small, and they sometimes had a courtyard, depending upon the riches of the owner. But they had a door, and the door opened onto a street. And the streets of downtown Old Jerusalem are very narrow. Obviously, there's no vehicles of any kind going through there at that time. So the streets were very narrow. So if you can see the picture, the house is full. And the courtyard, if there was one, was full. The doorway was full. And outside into the streets, it was all completely full. And then this is what happened in verses 3 through 4. And some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was live, excuse me, lying on. So we know at this time in Jerusalem, all of the roofs were flat for several different reasons. But they were made out of timbers or wood that were parallel in the top. But they were three to four feet apart. And then going the reverse way, they would put branches or thatch or dirt or clay. And sometimes if they were rich enough, they would even put tiles there. So it was totally different than the roofs that you and I are familiar with today with shingles. So these men came to this facility. They came to this house, couldn't get in. And either through a ladder or an outside stairway, they went up to the roof and they began to tear away the roof. And so they began to take the branches away. They began to take the dirt away. And they began to put a, a hole there in the middle of this. Now... <laughs> Can you imagine the interruption if you were listening to Jesus preach and somebody starts tearing a hole in the ceiling of the church? And can you imagine them looking around? What is going on? Even more, what if you were the owner of the house? Uh, hey, buddy, that's my roof up there. What are you doing? And it had to be a fairly large hole because they, the man was lying on a mat, so he was maybe five and a half feet tall. And so it had to be at least this wide and five and a half feet long. So it was a pretty significant hole that they dug. But these men were desperate. And they were desperate for a reason. They wanted to see Jesus. Because they thought, if we can get to Jesus, things can change. Have you ever been desperate enough 
to do something that you've never done before in order to receive something that you've never received before. How desperate are you to see Jesus? How desperate are you to bring your needs, your problems, your issues, your life into Jesus? Well, verse 5 says this. So when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the operative word in verse 5 is faith. We know that faith is is an element of the Christian life that is indispensable. For in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it says, For without faith... It's impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so when Jesus looked out, and he saw not just a paralyzed man, but he has the ability that we don't, he could see inside of the man as to what was going on and inside of his friends. And when it says, when he saw their faith, he said, sons, your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus was in the house. And when Jesus is in the house things happen. When Jesus is in the house, there is great peace. When Jesus is in the house, there is forgiveness of sin. When Jesus is in the house, there is healing that is possible. And when Jesus is in the house, there is always hope. Now, here's the good news for the people who are here today and in the lobby. Jesus is in the house. (laughs) Jesus is right here. The presence of the Lord is right here among us, and he is ready, willing, and able to meet your emotional needs, your physical needs, your marital needs, or your spiritual needs, because Jesus is in the house. He came seeking physical healing, but instead he first got spiritual healing. Now, physical healing is great, but spiritual healing is greater. Physical healing is always temporary. No matter who the individuals were that were healed during Jesus' time or even today, they all eventually died. It was temporary. But spiritual healing (laughs) is eternal. And God comes to live within us forever to forgive our sins. Physical healing alleviates and relieves the pain of the body in some way. But Spiritual healing alleviates the pain of the soul, which is greater. Certainly, we should pray for people to be physically healed. Carol and I have a a list of prayer things that we pray for each day. And on that list, there are many individuals who have all kinds of different issues in their life. And many of them have physical issues. Many of them are going through those kind of troubles. And we pray for them. That's appropriate. But on your prayer list, do you have anyone that you're saying... I am praying for their spiritual needs. I want God to touch them and reveal himself to them in such a way that they see the glory and majesty of God. Verse 6 and 7. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they weren't talking out loud. They were thinking this in their hearts. But Jesus has the ability that we don't. He can see within the hearts of people and know what they're thinking. Now, their theology is correct. Only God can forgive sins. 
their problem was misidentification because they had standing right in front of them in the very flesh God who was in the form of Jesus Christ standing there who had the ability to forgive sins and they missed it. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins. In Psalm 51, after David has had his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and after he has sent her husband Uriah to the front lines to be killed, he has a change of heart. He recognizes that he has done wrong. He, so Psalm 51 is a repentant psalm. And in that psalm, David says this, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All sin is against God. We don't sin against people. We sin against God. And people suffer the consequences of our sin against God. You're driving down the road and an individual's drunk. He comes over to your side and smashes into you and you're killed. He didn't sin against you. He sinned against God. But because of his sin against God, you and I often have to pay the consequences of other people's sins. We can forgive people. We just can't forgive sin. (laughs) And verse 8, he says this. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said, why are you thinking these things? Jesus knew exactly that they were thinking, this guy's a fraud. He's not real. Anybody can say you can forgive sins, but that doesn't mean it happened. We don't see any evidence of any sins being forgiven here. This guy's a fraud. And so in verse 9 through 11, Jesus responded by doing this. He says, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the reason he's going to later heal this man of his physical illness. So that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now, when God forgives our sins... That is an invisible thing. It happens internally. It happens inside of us. There is no visible evidence that our sins have been forgiven. Now, that doesn't mean that our life doesn't change and there is a manifestation of that, but you can't view it. But Jesus tells us this. Okay, if you think that I can't forgive sins, I know that in your theology you think that an individual cannot be cured unless they have been forgiven of their sins. This guy obviously hasn't gone to the temple. He hasn't stood in front of the, of the priest. He hasn't done all the things that were necessary, but I forgave his sins. Let's see if he can be healed because if he can be healed, then his sins have really been forgiven. And so he says to the man, get up, take your mat, and walk out of here. Now, a man who was paralyzed who gets up and walks out of the house, what do you do with that? How how do you discredit that? How do you say that didn't happen? How do you say, I don't believe you can do it? The man stood to his feet, which re-energized the muscles within his legs so that he could walk. He picked up his bed which energized his arms, which enabled him to lift things, and he walked out of the house. Jesus said, I can do either. I can forgive people's sins, or I can heal them supernaturally. So verse 12 says this, the end of the story. So he got up, this is the paralyzed man, took his mat and walked out 
in full view of them all. He didn't go out the back door. He came in through the roof and left through the door. In in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. When we see the movement of God, it moves us to praise. When we see the glory of God, it moves us to praise. When we see God working in the lives of individuals, it moves us to praise Him. As a matter of fact, the psalmist says, let everyone that has breath praise the Lord. That's the story. So what does it mean for us today? How do we apply this to our lives? What are the practical applications of this? So whether in your family you have had a tragic interruption of some kind, and by the way, all of us will have at some point in our families, that tragic uh, interruption may have been a divorce, it may have been the death of a loved one, as Doug shared his story here earlier today, it may have been a financial setback, it may have been an illness, it may have been an unexpected phone call, it may have been a son or daughter that just simply went awry of what you really intended for them to do with their life. It could be a a bunch of other things that I've not even mentioned before. What do we do when we have a tragic interruption in our life? I want to go back and look at this story and pull out the practical applications because there's four things that we can do when that happens. And the first is this, and it's found when they says his four friends went to his house, picked him up, and took him to Jesus. And the first principle is this, we bond with spiritual friends. Doug talked a little bit this morning about how the spiritual friends in his life helped him. And we know that all of us need friends that we can depend upon. And we go through tough times, can put their arms around us. They can lift us up. They can pray for us. They can encourage us. They can walk through us. They can help us to see things even when we get a little cloudy. We all need to bond with spiritual friends. Who are the spiritual friends in your life that will assist you during difficult times of tragic interruptions? The second thing is found in verse 5 when it says, when he saw their faith, we need to develop a foundation of faith. When Jesus saw their faith, faith, faith takes a moment to start, but it never has an ending point. There is a moment when we say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and I ask him to forgive my sins. That's the beginning of faith, but faith does not have an ending point. God says, I want you to grow with your faith. I want it to mature in you. I want it to get bigger. I want it to get stronger, and that's why he says to us in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, after that initial kernel of faith, we keep growing our faith when he says, Romans 10, 17, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. How do we get stronger in our faith? We begin to read, understand, delve into the scriptures and the word of God, and then we begin to apply them to our life, and our faith continues to increase. The third thing that is found is this. He recognized that physical healing was great, but spiritual healing was greater. And so he recognized that the eternal always outweighs the temporary. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, it says to us, What good is it for a man or for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Is it possible for you to go through your entire life and be successful at everything 
accept your relationship with God and come to the end and realize you missed it? You forfeited your soul? Even though all of these other things came to you? The fourth thing is this. In the last verse, it says, we keep on praising God. I would ask you to turn to the book of Habakkuk, but most of you don't even know where the book of Habakkuk is or whether it's even in the Bible. And it's right after Nahum. You know, where's that? So in deference to all of us, including myself, because I don't want you to spend five minutes looking for it, we're going to put Habakkuk on the board. We recognize in Habakkuk's life that he had a lot of problems just like Job had. He went through all kinds of difficulties. And at the end of the chapter of, of his book, he comes to this conclusion. I'm going to keep praising God. Here's what he says. Now, this is an agricultural society that depended upon crops and grain and animals. This wasn't a manufacturing society. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there's no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, I'm going to lay down and die. No. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. He says, I don't care what happens to me. I may not like it. It may be tough. But I am going to praise God. So if you can develop spiritual friends that will walk with you through this interruption in your life, if you can develop a foundation of faith that grows strong in the Lord, if you recognize that all everything else is temporary except our relationship with God, you will keep praising the Lord. <laughs> in February of 1974, Adam Brown was born to a very strong Christian religious family in Arkansas. He grew up as kind of a favorite child. He was an individual who was the favorite of everyone, the most popular kid in the class, the football hero, the individual who seemed to have everything together. When Adam Brown was 10 years old, he came from a military family. As well as a strong Christian family, they were also very patriotic. And he saw a story about the, the Navy SEALs. And he said, you know... When I grow up, I want to be a Navy SEAL. Obviously, at that time, he didn't realize how difficult and hard that situation is. So he got out of high school, and he kind of went his own way and started straying away from the Lord and doing his own thing, got into some major trouble in his life. And he met a Christian woman, and this Christian woman began dating him, and they eventually they got married, and they had a child. And the wife said to him, you know, why don't you pursue your dream? You want to be a Navy SEAL, why don't you go for it? So in 1999, he joined the U.S. Navy, and five years later, in 2004, he decided to try to be a Navy SEAL. 173 days, this individual went through the training to be a SEAL. Rigorous, difficult, demanding, sometimes bordering on the cruel. After 173 days, he received his trident to be a Navy SEAL. He was very happy about it. There was great celebrations and so forth. He began to do additional training and was sent overseas and deployed to various places around the world. And he came back in 2006 for some additional training. And during a training exercise, they didn't use real bullets, but they used paint guns. And somehow his goggles moved to the side of his face and he got shot in the eye. And when he got shot in the eye, he lost the vision in his eye. And that's why you see him with these special glasses on. So here is his dream crushed, this tragic interruption of his life. That thing that he dreamed about being from the time he was 10 years old 
You can't be a seal with one eye. There had never been a seal with one eye. To make matters worse, he was a sharpshooter, which means he relied upon long-range artillery with a rifle and all of that. And it was his dominant eye. So he was given a desk job, and he grumbled about it a little bit. And finally, he said, you know, I'm not going to let this get me down. I'm going to learn to shoot with my other eye. And so he went back into training, and he trained rigorously until he got to the point where he could pass the test to shoot with his left eye instead of his right. He was the only individual in the history of the SEALs who has one eye in his on-combat duty. So he was deployed to Afghanistan. And when he was in Afghanistan, the, actually the very first tour that he was there in Afghanistan, he was in a Humvee. The Humvee ran over an IED. It flipped over, and he was on the right-hand passenger side. He had his hand underneath the Humvee, and it was crushed, and three of his fingers were torn off. They had to be reattached. A second interruption in his life. Now that he had done all this work, all this training to get back to being a SEAL, his hand, the one that he used to pull the trigger of the gun, was smashed and no use. So once again, he was given a desk job, and he said, I'm not giving up. I'm going to learn to shoot with my left hand. <laughs> and so for the next several months, he shot with his left hand until he was able to pass the competency test, and he was deployed once again to Afghanistan. Unfortunately, this time in Afghanistan, he was a sniper, and while he was providing cover for some of his unit, he was killed. This is a picture of his son at his gravesite. Now, the story doesn't quite end there, although it sounds like it does. Adam Brown was an extremely religious man. His faith was strong. What carried him through was the support of his friends, was his love of the country, was the fact that he knew everything else is temporary. And therefore, when he was at, when the funeral was taken at the Baptist church where he attended, it was an overflow crowd like Mark chapter 2. Here are some of the things the individuals said about Mark Brown. Excuse me, Adam Brown, I'm sorry. Adam was fueled by faith, family, and a love of his country in that order. See, he recognized he had a foundation of faith. He recognized spiritual friends. He recognized allegiance to the way that his country had provided for him. A second opinion, a second person speaking at the funeral said, Adam was an incredibly strong Christian who loved the Lord and served him until his last dying breath. A third individual says this, Adam's devout Christian faith matched his toughness and fearlessness. It was the cornerstone upon which he built his life and the compass he turned to for guidance. To truly live one's faith in word and deed is a daily struggle. And Adam devoted his life to winning that struggle. Adam implemented those four principles. He surrounded himself with people of faith. He recognized he needed to build his own foundation of faith. He consistently sent letters back to his wife when he was overseas. And in every letter, he included passages of scripture that was meaningful to the both of them. He recognized that this life was only temporary. In one letter back to his wife, he said, I face death every day, and I never know whether I'm going to make it to tomorrow. He said, I hope I live to be 99. But he said, if I don't, don't grieve for me, because I'm in heaven with the Lord forever. And he consistently praised the Lord. I don't know what your interruption is in your life. I don't know what kind of issues or problems you've been facing or going through. But I do know this. 
Jesus is in the house. (laughs) And when Jesus is in the house, there is forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. There is hope. There is an ability to meet whatever need you have in your life. If you've never come to the point of accepting Jesus Christ by faith as your personal Savior, this is a moment when you might be able to make that stand of faith. I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me and our prayer partners are going to come forward. They are here to love you, to pray with you, to encourage you, to be a spiritual support to you, to meet your needs. So after we conclude this with prayer, if you want to come and you're going through a tragic interruption in your life, you didn't even plan on, you didn't see it coming. God loves you. Jesus is in the house. Lord, we just praise you today. I praise you for the people in this congregation who love you, who are building a foundation of faith that will overcome any object they have in their life. I thank you for spiritual friends, brothers and sisters in Christ who band together, support and love and encourage one another. I'm thankful that we can praise the Lord as we did earlier today and lifting our hands and lifting our voices to God and just saying, Lord, we love you. Thank you for all you have done for us. Lord, we realize this life is temporary but eternity is forever. So we would simply ask today that we would make sure that we have prepared to meet you when the moment of our death comes, that we will be entered into the grace and glory of heaven and know that we are there with you forever and ever. It's in Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today.